Our readings for this morning come from the book of Isaiah, and you'll find the first reading, which is chapter 24 of the book of Isaiah, in your Bible, uh, which you'll find in the tray in front of you, beginning on page 706. Isaiah chapter 24. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins, for thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when, an, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven 
and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before the elders, his elders. And uh, please do pick up a Bible and turn back to Isaiah, this time to Isaiah uh, 25. We'll carry on reading through there, page 708. As you're turning back to uh, Isaiah chapter 25, let me uh, lead us in prayer. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Father God, we do thank and praise you that you are a speaking God. Thank you for your word. And we pray that all of us might be humble, uh, that you might uh, grant us contrition in spirit. We might rightly tremble under your word, that we would listen aright, uh, that we would see more of Jesus, your purposes and plans in him, and delight in him all the more. Amen. Isaiah chapter 25, starting at verse 1. O Lord... You are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners, as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, uh, uh, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust." O Lord, you are my God. Can you say that? Can you say that and and mean it? And what does it mean if you can? Well, today we see it means the best news in the world ever. Uh, Today we are considering God's glorious salvation. And as we consider who God is and what he's done we'll discover we're encouraged, we're motivated, we are strengthened 
to keep trusting him. We're in the middle section of the first half of this book of Isaiah. And last week we were reminded this section is all about false faith bashing and firm faith building. It's like when you see those houses being demolished, you know, they come down and then a new block of flats or a new house goes up in its place. Isaiah wants God's people to grasp fully that true security is not found in the nations under judgment, but in the Lord alone. So trust him. He wants us to realize we mustn't put our confidence in ourselves or even in the best of leaders, but only in Jesus, God's appointed king. And this morning, it's as if we have more motivation heaped on us to to keep trusting God. Uh, All of Isaiah is rich, beautiful, and majestic. But in in the mountain range that is the book of Isaiah, chapter 25 stands as one of the peaks. It's zooming in on God's salvation and and holding it up like a diamond to the light. And the one thing I want us to capture, to be struck by, to be spurred on to do, is to keep trusting the Lord God. Keep trusting the Lord who will bring his glorious future salvation from judgment. I think as Christians we can sometimes grow complacent or blasé about God's salvation. We kind of take it for granted. We don't ponder it as much as we should. It doesn't make much of a difference, if we're honest, to our daily lives. So my hope and prayer for me, for each one of us, is we are astounded afresh by what God has done and what he has in store for his people. Now, here's a bold claim you can see if you agree. Every true longing everyone has ever had is only to be found in Jesus. Every true longing everyone has ever had is only to be found in Jesus. Well, with that in mind, let's turn to the first scene. We're going to look mostly at Isaiah 25. We'll have some reference to chapter 24. The first scene Isaiah gives us in chapter 25 comes in verses 1 to 5. And first of all, we see God's glorious salvation involves a ruin and a refuge. You can see it there on on the handout if you've got it in front of you. A ruin and refuge. Chapter 25 begins with praise, doesn't it? O Lord, you are my God... I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Uh, That little phrase, faithful and sure, is saying God's wonderful plans are utterly trustworthy. His purposes are ones of absolute faithfulness. You can bet the bank on what God is doing. And what is he doing? What, What elicits such praise Verse 2, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Uh, This isn't Isaiah being xenophobic or racist, that the foreigner here means someone outside of God's people, someone in opposition to God. So this isn't any particular city, it stands for a world resisting its maker. We get a fuller description in chapter 24. Just flick back to the verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. 
And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. You see, all ends and everything in between of the social spectrum under judgment. And why? Uh, Verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Uh, Chapters 24 to 27 are the third set of vignettes. We looked at the first two cycles last week. uh, But by chapters 24 to 27, the, the, the lens has zoomed all the way out. Chapter 24 gives us two scenes of just judgment, of total devastation. Uh, First on the earth or the land, verses 1 to 20. And then on the host of heaven and the kings of the earth, uh, verse 21. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. It is cosmic, cataclysmic judgment. And chapter 25 says this is good news. One day God will be seen and acknowledged by everyone. One day evil will be ruined. It will be dealt with. And it is such a good thing God takes evil seriously and deals with it. You can just skim the headlines, can't you, on any given day. And there are just countless atrocities in this country and all over the world. People doing unspeakably wicked things to others. It's grim. There's even a phrase known as doom scrolling. Have you heard of that one? Where people just keep on reading sad, disheartening, depressing stories. God's glorious salvation means evil is judged. No one will get away with it. It is salvation through judgment. And it's also salvation from judgment. You see, there is ruin for all opposed to God. But also verse 4 of chapter 25, God is a refuge, a a stronghold to his people. Verse 4, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. And whether storm or heat, God is a shelter, a shade, a stronghold. It's helpful to know the poor and needy are are shorthand for God's people. The poor In spirit, those who recognize their own insufficiency and inadequacy to get right with God by what they do. Those who are needy, they know they need God. God's not promising physical protection in this life to his people. We can read either the Old or or New Testament and see that. We can look around the world today and see Christians enduring all sorts of persecution. But true safety 
eternal safety, the safety and security that really count, are found in the Lord. Ultimately, the breath of the ruthless, their threats, their insults are like a storm bashing against a firm wall. It's the picture of a a fortress standing firm while the storm rages outside. And even if the ruthless follow through, even if you're killed for being a Christian, you're just sent to be with Jesus. You're safe. It is at the cross where we see both God's judgment on evil and also the stronghold. The cross is both ruin and refuge. Except Christ was ruined to become our refuge. At the cross, Jesus took the judgment we deserve. So it's not like humanity is divided into good and bad. That's how films work. I think it's how social media seems to work. But in reality, we've all rebelled against God's good and loving rule. None of us by nature want to put Jesus first in our lives. But Jesus took the punishment we deserve. In him alone, there is safety, security. In him, there is shelter and shade from God's judgment. At the cross, we see God's glorious salvation through judgment and from judgment. And it means we have a secure future. And it's to that future Isaiah turns next, is in verses six to eight, we consider a banquet and bliss. There's our our second uh, big theme, a banquet and bliss. Look again with me to verse six. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Isaiah describes God's glorious salvation like a, a fantastic feast, a bountiful banquet, the very best of meals. It is satisfying to see that rich food uh, full of marrow uh, that is meant to sound delicious. Maybe if you're a vegetarian, it doesn't sound quite so appealing. Perhaps it's only because we're so used to flavorings and additives. We, but um, we get the gist, don't we? Uh, We live in a a society used to excess food. Back then, food was harder to come by. No supermarkets, no takeaways. As one of my children said to me just a few days ago, food just tastes 100% better when you're hungry. It's true, isn't it? We don't starve our children. (laughs) Just, Just imagine waiting a lifetime for a feast like this, a forever feast, the very best of food the very finest wine. It is the exact opposite of the judgment in chapter 24. We we read back in verse seven. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. Or verse 11, there's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark, the gladness of the earth is banished. What a contrast to what God's banquet is like. And it's not just about calorie consumption. Meals in the Bible represent relationship. This is God inviting people to dine with him. It is relationally rich. God's salvation is like a a family meal, the best of family meals. At the end of chapter 24, we read about God's glory being before his elders. It reminds us of Exodus 24. that Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up And they saw the God of Israel. 
There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Rich relationship. Uh, We can't have escaped the fallout in the press of broken relationships. Uh, Harry and Meghan, Will and Kate all over the news. We long for relationships that last, but sin so often gets in the way. Here is unfathomable grace. Here is lavish love. Here is a banquet with the holy creator God of the universe. It is a relationship that will never disappoint, never decrease, never die. And did we spot who's on the guest list? Verse six, all peoples. Five times in just three verses, we get the word all, all peoples, all nations, all faces, all the earth. Given this comes in a section of judgment on the nations, this is shocking. Here is a meal for all peoples, not just Jew, but Gentile as well. It is extraordinary. It's a party for all. But also notice what won't be there. Verse 7, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Here is the death of death. Strange, isn't it? Death is the most universal of topics. We all face death. It is a covering, a veil over all peoples. And yet it is one of the least least talked about topics. Perhaps it's because of the fear and uncertainty it arouses in so many people. Maybe we know personally the pain and grief death brings. But the Lord God will swallow up death forever. Permanently, for good. Even more than that, you see, he will wipe away tears from all faces. Uh, The idea is he he wipes them away for his people never to cry again. Uh, This isn't the parent wiping the child's tears only for them to cry again the next day. No, this this is so much better. It is still deeply personal, deeply affectionate and tender, but it's lasting. No more tears. And also no more reproach, no shame. All the insults you get for following Jesus, gone. But also I think the shame we feel for sin, even when we know we're forgiven, gone for good. Nothing can dampen, diminish or destroy the joy of this blissful banquet. It's no surprise, is it? The New Testament picks up this imagery again and again. Jesus frequently refers to the kingdom of God as a banquet. His feeding of the 5,000 is certainly an abundant meal. His last supper is a rich relationship. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul quotes from verse 8. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus' resurrection, his victory over the grave, secures the destruction of death. We can see just what it took for God to swallow up death. 
Isaiah 25 is a foretaste of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth Isaiah will go on to look forward to right at the end of his book. In Revelation, John describes the new heaven and the new earth like this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And all of this is secured for us by Jesus. Can you remember what the first and last signs or miracles are that Jesus does in John's gospel, at least in the first half of John's gospel? Uh, John chapter two, Jesus turns water into wine. Uh, What does the master of the feast say? Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana at Galilee and manifested his glory. You see, who is the true master of the feast? It's Jesus, isn't it? John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead and announces, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And so we discover why it's only on this mountain the Lord makes this feast. It's only on this mountain death will be swallowed up because it's all been achieved by Jesus through his death and resurrection. This banquet, this bliss, it isn't available anywhere else. Can we begin to see more and more why we should trust Jesus and only Jesus? Every true longing everyone has ever had is only to be found in Jesus. Do we believe that? Safety, satisfaction, pleasure, relationship, love, life, all in him. All fear removed. It is, in a word, bliss. It means perfect, complete joy. But we're not there yet. Do you see, from Isaiah's day, there is a future focus. Did we spot that word will? It's in the future. And for us now, God's salvation is still future focused. Yes, it has been won for us through Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, Yes, we already enjoy in part what these verses describe, but we know the fullness is still to come. As if this is all just too good to be true, Isaiah adds the line at the end, for the Lord has spoken. It's like he's saying, look, God said this. We've got his word. We really can believe this. Perhaps you're here today and you know you're not yet a Christian. You're not quite sure, perhaps, what you think may be. And all of this does seem too good to be true. Well, will you consider Christ? Uh, Will you take some time to examine his claims and, crucially, his death and resurrection? Because if it all stacks up, and it does, then this really is the best news ever. No one needs miss out. It's for all peoples, for all nations. No one is too far gone, too far off, too bad. It doesn't matter where you're from, what you've done. You can be part of this banquet, this bliss, in and through Jesus. Maybe you're already persuaded, but you haven't yet signed on the dotted line, as it were. Well, don't delay. Because we discover in our final section, God's salvation is not only brilliant... It is also binary. In verses 9 to 12, we learn there are only two responses, two outcomes. Trusting 
and trampling. As I read verses uh, 9 to 12 for us again, just see if you can spot what God's hand is said to be doing and what his foot is doing. Verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground to the dust. We notice how uh, verse 9 is very much like verse 1. Either side of this banquet and bliss is praise. But we've moved from verse 1, being an individual praising, now to verse 9, corporate praise. Uh, This is God's people on that day of salvation looking back with joy. They've waited and they've waited and waited. And now the great day has finally arrived. Uh, Waiting is pretty much synonymous with trusting. Uh, Trusting maybe with a a sense of expectant longing added to it. It's inescapable. Do you see, God is the one who's done the saving. It is his salvation. These these people have trusted, but it's all God's work. And so now his hand rests on the mountain. It's a description of his powerful and personal presence remaining with his people. And it creates a sharp contrast with what follows. Moab is trampled. We might ask, well, why is Moab singled out? It's been a chapter, hasn't it, of of universal scope. To refer to Moab seems almost petty. And so we need to remember the besetting sin of Moab in particular, their pompous pride. Back in chapter 16, Moab is offered shelter, but it is Moab's pride that prevents them turning to the Lord. Moab is a portrait of all who refuse to come to the banquet. Clearly, all the alls of verses 6 and 8, 6 to 8, they're, they're not all without exception. There will be some who, in their pride, refuse to come to God. And it's a deliberately stomach churning image we're given. Verse 10, Moab's trampled down like a pile of manure. And then, verse 11, he spreads out his hands to swim. This is someone swimming in sewage. And why would anyone choose this? Well, only stubborn pride will mean we miss out. Only those who refuse the invitation. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a story about a man giving a great banquet. But if you remember, people make up excuses not to come. So the master sends out his servant to invite, even to compel people to come in. And at the end, we read this. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And many of the Jews of Jesus' day refused to come to him. And so they missed out. They would not trust him. And so they justly faced trampling. And so do all who refuse him today. Whilst there is refuge in Jesus, whilst he has borne God's anger at the cross for all who trust in him, if we refuse to come to him, 
then ruin still awaits. There is a day of perfect justice set. God's judgment will fall either on Jesus on the cross in our place or on us in eternity. Well, as we close, can we see quite how binary, quite how polar this is? There is a warning, but there is also confident hope as well. Why not spend some time this week meditating on verses uh, 6 to 8? You could uh, write them out, put them up on your mirror or something. What, What motivation, what encouragement to keep looking to Jesus, keep trusting him. What discouragement to put our trust anywhere else. Will we trust or be trampled? They're the only two responses, the two outcomes we're left with, aren't they? So for all who are his, let's keep trusting the Lord God who will bring his glorious salvation from judgment all through Jesus. Let's pray together. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Father God, thank you for the salvation you have achieved for us through your son. Thank you for this incredible picture of a a marvelous feast, this banquet prepared by you for your people, open to all peoples of utter satisfaction, of rich relationship, of bliss that death can never destroy. Thank you that it is secured for us in Jesus. Please help us to look forward with eager longing to all that you have in store for us through your son and help us to keep trusting in him day by day. In his name and for your glory we pray. Amen.